and gold, gold then would be like his deity or his royalty, okay? But just looking at the practicality of acacia wood is really cool, and then you can, you can see why God used it practically, but also spiritually. It's a really hardy tree, or it could be a shrub, and it's normally found in really um, arid regions, predominantly Africa, Mediterranean regions, the Middle East area. Uh, it grows really well in normally bleak terrain. So when you're looking out at a, you know, a plain out in Africa and you see one tree, that's probably an acacia wood tree is what I read. Um, so it's a lot like cedar or other types of wood. It's naturally pest resistant. So you can see why the Lord would say to build all of this furniture out of acacia wood because he wants it to last for a long time. They used the tabernacle for 400 years um, before the temple, temple was built. Uh, so it's pest resistant because it has these like waste substances in the middle of the wood that apparently insects hate and find very unappetizing. So that's why it's pest resistant. It's also very strong, very dense, and even some of the different species of acacia, there's lots of different kinds if you look it up, have healing properties. They have like this acacia gum that comes from the inside that can actually heal wounds and has been used to heal wounds. So now let's put all this together. If you think about acacia wood then you have, and I think you have this on your handout. In summary, acacia wood is known for its strength, its incorruptibility, it has stood the test of time, has healing properties, and not to mention it likes dry, arid climates, so it's a great choice for the Israelites to use out in the middle of the desert. Truly, it is a root out of dry ground. So what does that sound like? You have the verse on your paper. Somebody's mumbling, Shay's mumbling. Say louder, Shay. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Isaiah 53, two. So you can see even acacia wood practically was a great choice for the Israelites being pest resistant, being strong, being available, but also spiritually, it's a great uh, choice because Jesus is called a root out of dry ground. Um, but if you think about his, um, the healing property, he's healed us, you know, he heals our wounds. There's healing properties, he is incorruptible, his strength, and he has definitely stood the test of time. So you can kind of, you guys see how acacia wood is a great way to portray Christ. Okay, yeah, not cool. So it's, I think hopefully you'll track with me all night long and this is gonna happen over and over and over for you as we go through each of these details. So go ahead and flip your hand out back over and we'll start there um, on the front side of your handout. So the, like I said, the tabernacle foreshadows the work and the person of Christ with just about every single detail. You can find symbolism, and you don't want to read too much into it, but some of these things are just really cool when you stop and think, I don't think that was an accident. I think God did that on purpose. So the first thing that you have there is that the tabernacle was God's temporary plan to dwell among a sinful people, while Jesus is God's permanent plan to dwell among a sinful people. So both the tabernacle and Christ were God's plan to dwell among his people. Secondly, the tabernacle was known as the tent of meeting. That's one thing that it was called. And it's not just because it's where people gathering, but it's because it's where God spoke with Moses 
and also where man spoke to God. So it's where man gave his sacrifice and God accepted it. It's where forgiveness was sought and mercy was granted. So you see there's a lot of purpose behind this tent of meeting, just as Christ then is the meeting place for us between God and man. So do you see that symbolism there? So Jesus is our meeting place, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Okay, so Christ is our meeting place. That's where we meet. Third, the tabernacle housed God's glory, just as Jesus houses God's glory. So again, you see that correlation. That was why the tent was there. I mean, the Shekinah glory was going to come down. We'll see that at the very end of Exodus and shine up out of that holy of holies. And it was there to house God's glory, and that's exactly what Christ did. So again, you see um, more symbolism. Fourth, then, the, to meet with God at the tabernacle, you had to walk through one door. There was only one place to enter into the courtyard, and then only one door into the actual tabernacle itself. So the door was on the east side. We'll look at that in a minute. Um, so I don't really think we should be that surprised to find out that Jesus says in John 10, 9, I am the door. Pretty cool. When you think about who he's talking to, he's talking to the Israelites. He's telling them, I am the door <laughs> or the gate. Some translations might say, say gate. Uh, because he is the one way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said in John 14, 6. No one gets to the Father except through him. And no one was going to get to God except by entering through this one door into the courtyard. Now, another cool thing is, um, number five there, the Israelites camped all around the tabernacle. So there was three, right? Yeah, there's four sides. So there was three tribes on each side. And the tribe that was directly outside the door was the tribe of Judah. So pretty cool that you had to walk straight through the tribe of Judah to get through that door into the courtyard for the tabernacle. And I don't think that should be a surprise because Christ came through the tribe of Judah. So again, you just even see the way God set up the tribes. There was even purpose behind that. Six, um, the fact that this is where the law was preserved, that is also symbolic. The two stone tablets containing God's commandments were placed in the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies, and that is a very fitting place for the law to stay since the law is also truly preserved forever in Christ. That's where it's preserved. So pretty cool symbolism there as well. Does that make sense? The law is preserved in the tabernacle. The law is preserved in Christ. Seventh, um, and this was my, by far my favorite out of this whole list. So the tabernacle was really nothing pretty to look at. All the beauty dwelt on the inside. And uh, that is also portraying Jesus. The outer layer was some type of durable leather. It actually says it might be like porpoise skins. One translation says like dolphin or just like, there's like no marine animals. They're in the desert. So I don't really know why it's, another one will say goat skins, badger skins. But the whole point is that the outer layer, and the very last thing we'll talk about tonight is the layers, and it's probably my favorite part, but the outer layer was some sort of durable leather. So it was a protective cover, but it was not pretty. You would not look at that thing and think, wow, 
amazing. Olive, it dwelt on the inside. And that also points to Christ, who did not appear to be anything special, yet the radiance of God's glory dwelt within him. Pretty cool when you stop to think about that one. Um, this, that, that also comes from Isaiah 53 two. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, if you flip over to page 69, let's just look at the layout. I also have these little tabernacle pamphlets that I'm gonna pass out. And just, if you wanna just look, and not everything on here is accurate, I don't think, but it is a good glimpse of just maybe what, you. if you start looking up tabernacle pictures, everybody's got a different rendering, you know. But this one, I did feel like they did a really good job of trying to be as accurate as possible. So I have two, and they're exactly the same if you just kind of want to see what somebody's rendering looked like. It might help if you were trying to picture what the Ark of the Covenant looked like or um, something. But if you look on page 69, we'll kind of get the layout here. So, go ahead. Not how I, like I was trying to picture it in my head as I was going through it, like trying to build a vision in my head, and when I looked at it, I was like, wow, this looks weird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I thought it was going to look like. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's like, I would have imagined if God was going to build a dwelling place for himself, I would have imagined it so much bigger, mm -hmm. and so, in which the temple was more grand later, but this was not. I mean, all the, like, all the beauty dwelt on the inside. It truly was a tent. And it really wasn't that big. So the, the whole length of it was 45 feet long, which is really not that long. I, my family room, I know my family room is 20 by 20. So I always gauge everything off of that. I'm like, okay, two of those plus five more feet. <laughs> I was like, that's not that long. It's not really that big. So 30 feet is the first part, the holy place. And inside the holy place then, so actually I am facing west right now. So um, it's not be backward, but I would enter this way into the tabernacle. So the entrance faced east, you would enter this way. And so the veil being of the holy of holies would be over there. And then on my left would be the lampstand. And in front of me, would be the altar of incense, which we're not gonna talk about tonight. We'll talk about that next week when we talk about the priests. And then to my right would be the table for the bread when you walk in. So there's just three pieces of furniture in that holy place. And if I were to go back out of the tabernacle here and I'm standing in the courtyard, right before you go into the entrance of the tabernacle is that, this says labor on here or the bronze basin for washing. And then right when you came into the entrance, you would have met the altar of, of burnt offering or the bronze altar. So layout makes sense looking at it. There's really not that much in there. So it was a lot of courtroom space. It made me wonder, like, you know, the, the space along the sides, like, was that ever used by the Israelites or did the I don't know if the, I'm assuming the women were welcoming the courtyard doesn't say that they weren't. Later, I know at the temple, they had separate spaces for the men and the women. So I, don't, I didn't see anything about being distinguished here between men and women. But there's a lot of space, but maybe it was used up for animals? Like other people, you know, were, were they milling about with animals or was all of that done outside the courtyard? I'm not sure. 
So kind of interesting to look at. <clears throat> now, one commentary that I looked at described the tabernacle and the courtyard as God's home. It obviously is his dwelling place. And he said, it's God's home. It had a yard. It had a fireplace. It had a dining room and a private living quarters. I was like, that's actually not a bad description. Stop and think about God having a yard and a fireplace, a dining room and a private quarters. It kind of makes sense. <clears throat> now, what else is really cool about having the entrance on the east side of the tabernacle? <clears throat> Sorry, guys. <clears throat> When Adam and Eve left Eden, <clears throat> so there's symbolism also, like the, the light being a tree, that could be a nod back to the garden. There's symbolism here taking us back to God's first dwelling place with man and woman, which would have been the Garden of Eden. So when Adam and Eve got kicked out, uh, the scripture says that they went east of Eden, which would put God back to the west. They went east. And then also, after Cain killed Abel, and then God gave him his punishment, it says that he went east of Eden. So you see mankind going away from God, going east. So the way back, and then, did you guys look this up? But who guarded the way back into the garden? The cherubim. The cherubim. And there's cherubim all inside the tabernacle guarding the way, right? So if you think about it then, man went east to go back to God. You had to go west. And who do you meet? Cherubim. <laughs> Before you can actually get to God inside the Holy of Holies. So you see that set up there, maybe? There could be some symbolism with that. I just thought that was <clears throat> neat thinking about that. Um, <clears throat> all right, let's start with the bronze altar then, because that's the first piece of furniture that you would meet when you stepped inside the courtyard. Uh, how would you guys describe the bronze altar? How big was it? You guys remember doing any of that in your homework? What page? Seven and a half. Seven and a half. Seven. Yeah, what page you on? 66. 66. <laughs> yeah, seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. And I actually have measuring tape in my purse. So I tried measuring this table. It doesn't, it didn't quite make it. It's like, it's like a small measuring tape. <laughs> I think this table is really close to about seven and a half feet. So you can get an idea. And that makes sense to me because I measured my kitchen table today and it was six and a half feet long. And so I was trying to envision how big the bronze altar was. And I figured you could fit four people on a side. I was like, that's something we ladies would understand. I think it's square and could fit 16 people. <laughs> That's about how big I see the bronze altar being. And what's really interesting, too, is that there's only one. There's only one, which I would think that many people and that many sacrifices, you know, it's kind of, I said this in your homework, but it's kind of like restrooms. Like, you should be gauging how many altars you need based on how many people. Like, kind of like, you know, you got to figure out how many potties you need. But we're going to have 600 people there. We need to make sure we have 20 Porta pots. I don't know. However, you figure that out. When you're plan yeah, right in event planning class. See, uh, do you need a toilet per 100 people at an event? Right there. Yeah. Right there. So yes, that's what it was in 2018 when I was in school. But okay. Yeah. So according to that, there should have been 
I don't know, a lot of altars. Yeah. Not just one. <laughs> there's only one. Why, was, why do you think there's only one? What could that symbol one, is? One Jesus. One Jesus. Mm-hmm. One cross, one sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That really counted. So the Lord said that there would be only one. So I thought that was kind of neat. Now, the other thing that's really significant here is that it's the place that God said he would meet with Israel. So where's the place that God said he would meet with Moses? In the Holy of Holies. Yeah. In the tabernacle, he said that he would meet with him at the Ark of the Covenant. So Moses got to go all the way inside to the Ark of the Covenant. But God says that he will meet with Israel here at the bronze altar. Why do you think uh, he's going to meet with them at the altar? Should be kind of self-explanatory, but maybe not. Why is this the meeting place? Why can't it be the lampstand? Why can't it be somewhere else? Why does it have to be at the altar? Sin. Sin. Because the sin had to be taken care of. Exactly. And just as the blood-stained altar was the meeting place of God and man here, so too is the blood-stained cross the meeting place of God and every sinner through Jesus. So, Christ, that's... That's where you start. That's your first meeting place when you come to God is coming to Christ. And the only reason you can come to Christ is because of what he did on the cross. Does that make sense? Okay, that's why this is the meeting place. You couldn't get to God in in the tabernacle without first making contact with the altar. Just as today, you cannot get to God without first making contact with the cross. You've got to face what Jesus did and either accept it or deny it in order to move forward in that relationship with the Lord. So the bronze altar and the sacrifices that were on it daily pointed to God's true provision of salvation, which was Jesus. So Leviticus 6.13, if you want to jot that reference down, says the fire on the altar was never to go out. It was always burning. So the bronze altar was kind of like just like a big firebox, you know, kind of like a big grill where they had to have a fire going all the time. And maybe that's because, you know, this was the meeting place between God and and man. And so maybe that's because the Lord was trying to say, hey, forgiveness and mercy are always available. The fire is always burning. You can always come to me. Stacy, why do you think it was bronze? So, yep, so bronze is um, the metal, I guess you say, of of sin or judgment when it's used. So when, was it Cain's descendants made a bunch of bronze uh, tools? And they say that those were probably the first weapons that were ever made, Mm -hmm. bronze. So bronze is associated with judgment. Yeah. That was kind of interesting. Any other thoughts? Any other questions so far? Am I going too fast? Okay. A fun fact about the bronze altar is that it was the only item to be, (coughs) when they traveled, to be protected with a purple covering. Why do you think that might be? Purple. Royalty. Royalty. Because the king was going to put himself on the altar. You see that symbolism there? I believe that is Numbers 4, 13, and 14 that gives us that information. Numbers 4, 13, and 14. 
So the bronze altar makes sense to me. There's one altar for Christ. It's where God had to meet with the Israelites because blood had to be shed in order for there to be forgiveness of sins. So we move on from that and we move up closer to the tabernacle and you have the bronze basin for the labor, as it says on your um, on page 69. So the purpose of the bronze basin then, <clears throat> I think is pretty obvious, it was for washing. So the priests had a very dirty job. There was blood all the time. <laughs> I can't imagine, you know. And you just think how much the blood stood out when you have these white linen curtains all around them. You know, was blood splattered on those curtains? <coughs> we don't have any instructions in scripture of them washing the linen curtains. So I wondered if they were just blood stained all the time. I don't know, it's an interesting thought. Uh, but the priests had to use the bronze basin all the time. On top of page 68, how often were Aaron and his sons to wash their hands and their feet? Every time. Every time. So anytime they entered the tabernacle or anytime they approached the altar to minister, they had to wash. So I would imagine they had to wash before and after the sacrifices. And they had to wash their hands and they had to wash their feet. Which the feet makes sense because they're probably wearing sandals. Or maybe they're barefoot. Sandals? I think they had sandals. I don't know. Maybe we'll get to that next week. <laughs> Can't remember. But they had to wash their hands and they had to wash their feet. So what do you think then the bronze basin spiritually might have signified? Washing. We're talking about washing. So what could the bronze basin spiritually signify? Any thoughts? Washing like if we go astray. How do we cleanse? We just ask? Ask for forgiveness. Ask for Yes, yes. So we don't, have to we don't have to physically wash, but yes, exactly, Shay. We need to spiritually have Jesus cleanse us. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So even though we are saved and we can't lose our salvation, we still need cleansing. We're still going to not do the right thing sometimes and need to ask for forgiveness so Jesus told Peter in John 13, 8, if you do not wash you, or if I, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And what does Peter say there? Okay, then by all means, wash all of me. <laughs> Let's take a shower. And Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed, which I take to be the one who is saved, the one who has bathed, does not need to wash except for his feet. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says feet there? But I think it's because we walk towards all manner of evil. We, t we go the wrong way all the time. And so he's like, wash your feet. Get back over here. Come back. Come back in the right direction. Uh, I just, it strikes me as interesting that Jesus said that, that they needed to wash their feet. While the, since the priests washed their feet, I saw maybe some symbolism there. Um, now, this was interesting. Question seven, then, on page 68. What is, and the commentators don't say much about this, but what does Exodus 38.8 say that the bronze basin was made out of? Did you guys answer that question? 
about ministering women. I can't really find that in scripture anywhere except for here. Uh, But it was made out of the bronze mirrors. And I did find one guy that said that, yeah, women had these, well, they probably got them from the Egyptians, but that was, the mirrors were made out of bronze. And so that's what they made this basin out of, which is really fascinating when you stop and think that basin then would have been reflective. So they would have been able to see the grime on themselves, maybe even see the blood on themselves, so that they could probably get cleaner also. It would have been reflective. Well, with that in mind, what's the best reflective tool we have for cleansing? Any idea? God's word. God's word is how we see our sin. Ephesians 5.26 says we are cleansed with the washing of water by the word. Ephesians 5.26. That is our reflective tool that we can use. So honestly, you guys, the less that you are in God's word, the harder it is going to be to recognize your sin. The less you're in God's word, the harder it's going to be to recognize your sin. And honestly, that is really, it's a really dangerous way to live, to not be in God's word and to not know whether or not you're in sin because unknowingly then you could hurt your kids, you could hurt your marriage, you could hurt your witness, you could hurt your faith, you could sabotage all of that unknowingly. But the word is there to show us our sin. We don't always want to see it, but it's an absolutely fantastic reflective tool. God's going to show us when we're in his word we're not walking the right way and we need to wash our feet. Does that make sense? So I thought it was really cool just to think about the bronze basin being made out of mirrors and what that might symbolize and seeing it as a reflective thing, being able to see the grime that was on them. Thoughts on that? Okay. All right. So let's say that we're a priest now, all right, and our duties at the altar are finished but we need to go inside and we need to take care of the lampstand. So we're going to wash up at the bronze basin and then we head inside the tabernacle and we walk through the curtain. And what do we see when we walk through the curtain? What do we see inside? What are we surrounded with? Yep, so the lampstand is shining. Maybe it's kind of flickering a little bit and the table is over here. What else do we see walking inside? What's everywhere? Cherubim. There's cherubim. There is incense, so there's probably smoke. Yes. You're one step ahead of me. Come back next week. So there's there's not only cherubim on the veil, in front of them, there's cherubim all around the, on the inner layer of the tabernacle. So it's made of fine linen, and then it's got scarlet, or blue, purple, and scarlet threads, and it's got cherubim everywhere inside. So just imagine, like, it makes so much sense to me now why the psalmist <coughs> of Psalm 61.4 would say, Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. You walked inside, you just felt like 
you're surrounded by angels or surrounded by God, but you just, and what do we know is at the throne of God based on like Isaiah 6? Cherubim are at the throne of God. So is there any, is it any wonder then that in God's dwelling place in the tabernacle, he's got the whole place surrounded with cherubim? Just makes sense. Now, if I look to my left, I'm, I'm a priest and I've walked inside, then I'm going to see the lampstand. And we already started talking about the lampstand. But you have the petals, you have the buds, you have the blossoms, almond blossoms. And the branches, it is supposed to look like a tree. It's supposed to give us the idea of a tree. So many scholars then do say that it points to the tree of life guarded once again by cherubim, because it would have been cherubim guarding the way back to the tree of life. Scripture doesn't tell us that exactly, but what scripture does say is that Jesus is the light of the world. So this is the first thing we can say here. John 8, 12, we know Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus said, anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So there you see light and life coming together. So maybe it did portray the tree of life. There's, it's a mult, there's, so many, there's so many layers here to what the lampstand could truly symbolize. Um, and I mentioned this earlier, but scripture then says that Psalm 119, 105 um, that the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we get the idea of the lampstand being representative not only of Christ, but his word. And he is the word made flesh. So that makes sense. Now, here's a cool thing. Did anyone notice there are no measurements for the lampstand? What's that? Except kind of. Kind of? Because they were supposed to use a certain amount. Oh, is it 75? Or is that something else? True, true. But we don't have any specific measurements for the for the lampstand. So some commentators would point to that saying there's no measurement because you cannot put a measurement on how far the light of the Lord is going to go, the light of his word is going to go. It can reach everywhere, right? There's no place that it can't penetrate. So they didn't put a measurement on that. Kind of interesting. Without the lampstand, then, the priests would have been unable to do any of their work. Think about that. There's four layers. There's four layers. It would have been pitch black inside the tabernacle if they didn't have a lampstand. So they had to have some way, practically, to light up the space. And likewise, apart from Christ, who is the light and his word, we would walk in darkness and would be able to do nothing without him, right? So you see that? We need him, we need his light. Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't do anything without him. Now, I also find it really fascinating then that Jesus, when he says that, uses tree imagery with the vine and the branches. That's what he's, you know, remain in me. And he, in John 15, he goes all through the vine and the branches when he makes that statement, apart from me, you can do nothing. Declaring that, yeah, if we remain in him, that's when we will bear much fruit. So 
Maybe that's why the lampstand has buds and blossoms, branches, makes you think of a tree. You kind of see like all the different directions that we could go with the lampstand. Is that, is that making sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a lot to take in. Um, but the whole idea there is by his light, with his word rooted in him, we will bear much fruit by his light. That's the only way you'll be able to do it. Now, the other thing I love is that the light of the lampstand was never to go out. It was always to be shining. They were never to let it go out. Why? Why could that be? Exactly. Exactly. I can't imagine being people in charge of that. The pressure. <laughs> I know. Don't mess up. I don't know if I would have handled the pressure very well. It's true. Yeah, God's light always shines in the darkness, and the darkness will never overcome it. So his light, his lampstand was always to be shining. Christ in his word will never be snuffed out, ever. So the lampstand was always to be lit. So here's something else then that's interesting. If we're thinking that the lampstand is like a tree, that means the lampstand was a tree on fire but never consumed. What does that remind you of? Moses and the burning bush. So could that be a nod back to the burning bush? It could be. I don't know. Pretty cool, though. Love it. I love it. I love it. And was that what like, might have been significant about Hanan? Did you guys say this earlier? No, go ahead. Oh, and the word for Hanan in Hebrew is very similar to the word for watch. Okay, and so that's why in Jeremiah, the, there's uh, the Lord, I think it's in Jeremiah, was it Jeremiah? Yeah, I think you had us. Yeah, yeah look that up. that up. And it's like something along the lines that God watches over his word to perform it. So that makes a lot of sense. So then if you think about the lampstand, the light, the word, and God watching over it to perform it, that's cool. And maybe that's why the, al the almond blossoms are there. He's watching over it to perform it. Oh! Cool. I love that. One thing I just thought of. Yeah. Um, in Revelation, it talks about the new heaven, the tree of life, mm -hmm. and how there's no sun or light mm. because it's continuous from it as well. So cool. I think it, it could absolutely be a nod towards that or like foreshadow that. Mm -hmm. The, the the lamb is it say that the lamb is the light or the glory of God is the light we won't need the sun anymore I forget exactly how it phrases it but yeah we have the light and we still have no light of lamp or sun the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever he will be our light no wonder there's a lamb standing in the tabernacle <laughs> he will be our light and we will have the tree of life and the tree of life will give fruit every month for the healing of the nations so that's so cool. I love it. Now, if the lampstand was always lit, that means that it was always illuminating the table, the place of fellowship. That's really what the table stood for. The table was um, more like a coffee table, probably. It was about three feet long, 
only 18 inches wide and just about two feet high, maybe a little over two feet high. So it wasn't that far off the ground, but the table isn't really the significant piece, it's the bread. That's what makes the table so significant. Um, it, the table is just there for the bread, of which there was 12 loaves, one to represent each tribe. And when I think of a loaf of bread, I think of like a loaf of banana bread, you know, this way. But these loaves were probably more like an eight inch cake pan size, like flat. And a lot of commentators say that the two rows of six that they were in was probably stacked. So there was a stack of a row going up of six, and another stack of six over here. They weren't like laid out this way, like I would envision. So I thought that was kind of interesting, just to give you a little bit of a visual there. <clears throat> so a, a table, when you sit around a table, you're usually, what are you doing at a table? Eating. You're eating. And a lot of times you're fellowshipping. A lot of fellowshipping happens around the table. My in-laws, that's all we do is sit around their table. When, and at my family, we eat and we leave the table. So, like, I had to get used, when I first started dating Craig, like, we'd all eat, and I'm like, nobody's getting up. <laughs> We're all still sitting here. And you might sit there for hours. Like, you just don't leave the table. So, it's the place of fellowship. And that is what is symbolized inside the tabernacle. It's, going to, it's, a, it's for a place of fellowship. But there's also different levels <clears throat> of of uh, <clears throat> foreshadowing here too, it's so multifaceted. Um, okay, so <clears throat> I find it, I find it um, really cool that the lampstand, being representative of the word, illuminates the, the table of fellowship. So basically you're seeing like the lamp showing you the way to fellowship to the table, and sitting on top of the table is the bread, <clears throat> now there's also, according to Numbers 15.5, a quart of wine for a drink offering at the table. So you see bread and wine at the table. Hmm, what could that symbolize? I love that. Communion, isn't that cool? Like the Lord was always pointing forward with all of these different details. <clears throat> In John 6.35, Jesus declares that he is the bread of life. So clearly, the bread on the table could definitely um, foreshadow Christ. And <clears throat> each week then, what would the priests do? They would go in and they would eat. They would break the bread in the presence of God, surrounded by cherubim. And they would eat the bread and then they would set out new loaves of bread every Sabbath. So think about this. We have a picture then of Christ's body being broken weekly by the priests as they ate the bread in God's presence, taking communion basically, um, and that would enable fellowship with God. And the bread also then at the same time represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It tells us that in the scriptures. <clears throat> so you get this picture of God's people being represented in Christ before God because he is the bread of life. Do you see that? <clears throat> thoughts. What are you thinking? How Anything? many priests were there? We don't know. So we know that when it started, Aaron is the high priest and he had four sons. And so it started with the five of them. But beyond that, I'm not sure. I think, I mean, eventually, I think there was a lot. And they had different, like, 
the tribe of Levi broke up into different segments of the priesthood. So there were some that were like just for, I feel like the sons of Korah, I think they did a lot of the singing or something. And then there's um, <clears throat> another group that they were in charge of, of breaking down the tabernacle and carrying the furniture. Like that was their job. Not everybody went inside the tabernacle. Not everybody did the sacrifices. So I'm not sure. Maybe we'll, I mean, maybe we'll come along that information this next week. They had to eat all the bread? That's what I was wondering. Well, they had families, so I would assume they could share with their families. Right? Maybe. So I would think that. would go in there and eat with them? Maybe they took it out. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Really a lot of space in not a lot of space in there. So, I mean, I, yeah, maybe I'm wrong on that, and I just see the, I see the picture of them breaking bread, but they probably took it out of time. The families aren't, aren't allowed to go in there. I would think it's only the priests. Good questions. Yeah, wave catch me. <laughs> no, it's good thoughts. What else? What else? What else? Are we thinking. I just can't help but think of like God <laughs> planning all of this. And to oh, me, like I just be like, <laughs> that's clever. And just like I just think of him. Obviously, he's not thinking. Oh, I'm so clever. And stuff, but mm. he's so clever. Like I know. it's just it's it's almost humorous how he just puts things in there, know. knowing that it's like foreshadowing. And then yeah. there's us that's like, oh look at that. And yeah. uh, to me, I just think God has like such a great sense of humor. I know. I just think it's so clever. <laughs> I do too. I do too. So I think the tabernacle was erected around 1400 BC. So 1,400 years before Christ came. He's so clever. He's so clever. He's so funny. I know. I totally agree. I don't know. I think the Lord might have thought to himself, I'm so clever. Oh, my God. I just, like, I can't help just, like, giggle, especially now as we go through it all. Like, it's just funny how he just, it's literally all right in front of us. But yeah, he's just funny. I know. That's so cool. And so, and yet, when you just read it, like if you just read through Exodus, you gotta dig to find these treasures. It's like it's so boring, you know. It's like, <laughs> like okay, how many times do I have to read? It's this big. It's made out of this. Like, let's move on. You can't wait to get to Joshua or something. And but this is this is there's treasures when you dig into scripture. So I think that's pretty cool. I think it also <laughs> shows God's patience. Because I'm sure it took them a while to, like, make all this stuff. Yes. And, like, God could have just been, like, here's your tabernacle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One, one guy that I read this week said it took the Lord seven days to make the entire universe and 40 days to explain how to build the tabernacle. <laughs> like, that's a really good point. But maybe that's because he's explaining it to <coughs> feeble human minds. It's like teaching your toddler how to do something. <clears throat> Right. Yeah, I'm sure that's what it, I mean. Yeah, he could, and you're right, he could have just done it himself, but how cool that he allowed, like, he filled the Israelites with his spirit, you know, remember we talked about Bezalel and Ohiliab last week, to, to build all of this, like, he let them be a part of it, and I think that's pretty cool, too. <clears throat> Any other comments before we move on to the Ark of the Covenant? All right, well, because the veil has been torn because of Christ's sacrifice, we get to march on into the Holy of Holies now. And inside the Holy of Holies, the only piece of furniture was the Ark of the Covenant. And again, it wasn't very big. 
it's not what I would build for myself if I was building myself an earthly throne. <laughs> That's for sure. It's about three and a half feet long and a little over two feet wide and two feet high. So it's a rectangle. And we already talked about acacia wood. <clears throat> um, so it's made out of acacia wood and it's overlaid with gold. <coughs> and then the most ornate and expensive piece and probably the most important piece was the mercy seat that sat on top of it. So have you, have you guys had a chance to even like look at the replica that's in that uh, pamphlet that I'm sending around? But the mercy seat at the top was also, I believe, made out of one piece, hammered gold. They were to make those cherubim and their, their wings like come out like this and they're supposed to be touching mm -hmm. and they're looking down so it's like they're bowed down maybe before God. Um, <clears throat> that is, it, when it talks about the Ark of the Covenant, it does talk about that being God's earthly throne. So was his, the place where he said that he would, um, he would dwell. All right, I already talked about Acacia Wood, so I gotta find where I'm at here. Uh, okay, so let's think about this box a little bit more. Um, we have this gold box with two stone tablets inside, the ones that God put the Ten Commandments on. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant, because this is the covenant that God made with them. So you have the, the tablets inside. There's also a couple other things that are later put inside the Ark of the Covenant, like Aaron's, Aaron's staff that blossomed in a jar of manna. I think that was it. But that's not talked about here. <clears throat> the point here is that the law is inside the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And then there's that lid that sits on top, the mercy seat with the cherubim, with their wings stretched out and touching. Now, Romans, Romans, not Romans, Numbers 789, I think you looked that up this week, but I'm going to read it to you, says... Number 789, when Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat. So he didn't see anything. There was no form, but he would hear God's voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony from between the two cherubim. He spoke to him that way. That's what the verse says. So God, that's where God met with Moses. He hears this voice, so it's like God is up above, <clears throat> above the mercy seat. Um, now, the mercy seat is not really a seat. That can be kind of deceiving. The word seat simply means location. If you um, look up the, the Hebrew word for it. So it's the location of mercy is basically what it means. And that's a very appropriate name because the mercy seat has another name. You guys know what the other name is? the atonement cover. So those two names are interchangeable for each other. It was either called the mercy seat or it was called the atonement cover. Because once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the uh, cover of the ark, on the mercy seat, so that he could <coughs> atone for the people's sins. So that's why it got the name atonement cover. So here's the picture then, okay? If God is enthroned above the ark, then the ark is like his footstool. It actually refers to the ark, I believe, as his footstool in Psalm 132, um, which I thought was neat. Yesterday, Mike said that the earth was God's footstool. So I was like, yeah, 
God is so big that the earth is his footstool. And yet here he is describing himself in the Ark of, you know, with the Ark of the Covenant as his, as his uh, throne. It's just crazy to me. Anyway, so God's up above. So what do you have? If the Ark is his footstool, then what's under his feet? The law is under his feet because the law is inside the Ark, okay? But what sits in between? The location of mercy. So you have God up above, you have the law underneath, and you have the location of mercy. You have the place of atonement that comes in the middle. So just visualize that when God looked down from up above, he didn't see the law that the people had broken. He saw the cover. He saw the mercy seat, the atonement cover. He saw the blood shed on their behalf. This is a beautiful picture of Christ, who is our atoning cover. So when God looked down, he didn't see the law that they were breaking. He didn't see the law that we're breaking. He would look down and he would see Jesus. He would see the atonement cover that was over the top of the law. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So cool that God calls that piece of furniture the atonement cover. He did that. He provided that. He didn't have to. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word. I actually really like the way the CSB says it. Translate it. Translate it that he sent his son uh, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So there you have it. He is the atonement cover. So that atonement cover is is an amazing picture of Christ. And it's that blood that they would sprinkle on there once a year. It, it was, then God would look down, he would see the blood, the atonement instead of the broken law. Isn't that cool? Kind of that set up there? Okay. So you see there then that mercy triumphs over the law. You have mercy over the law because you have the mercy seat sitting on top of the law. That's cool too. Even as far back as the tabernacle, Mercy triumphed over the law. <clears throat> now, I hope you guys are hanging in there. Is everybody hanging in there? Okay. Are we bored? Are we, are we enjoying this? Okay, good. All right. We do look a little tired. I will say, we look a little, I'm talking a lot though, so. Any comments? Anything? Anything sticking out to you? Okay. I'm about to blow your mind with the covers of the with the tent covers, all right? <laughs> Just go ahead and take your shoes off. <laughs> your socks are going to blow off. <laughs> I think in here, though. Okay, we have four layers to the covering. And they actually call, like, when, it, when you read it in Scripture, that inner layer of the fine linen, they call that the tabernacle. And then there's three layers that go on top of that. But all in all, you have four layers. And this one, if you look on the back of your handout, I've listed the layers for you. So that innermost layer seen by the priest was a layer of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Yes, the blue, purple, and scarlet all have significance. So the blue, what would we have the blue for? Heaven, purple is usually royalty, and scarlet, I would think, would have to be for Christ's blood. We see that. And then we've already talked about the cherubim skillfully worked in there. The second layer then that went over the top of the fine linen uh, was 11 curtains of goat's hair. 
Coat's hair. <laughs> Went over the top, okay? And then over the top of that was a layer of tanned ram skins. And then the outermost layer was that durable animal leather, whatever it was, goat skins, dolphin skins, porpoise skins, badger skins. Pick a translation, it'll tell you something different. <laughs> but it was some sort of leather that was the outer layer, okay? And it wasn't pretty, we already talked about that. So, fine linen, what does that symbolize? In Revelation 19.8, we're going back inside to the first layer, the layer of fine linen. It is said to be the righteous acts of the saints in Revelation 19.8. When the priests uh, were on duty, they had to wear linen undergarments to represent the righteousness, uh, you know, be, their righteousness before God. On the Day of Atonement, here's what Aaron was supposed to wear when he would enter the Holy of Holies. The holy linen coat with the, with the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. So he was to be all decked out in linen if he was gonna go inside the Holy of Holies. So I see a theme that is starting to kind of come out here. The fine linen represents righteousness in God's house. So if you think about this inner layer of fine linen, okay, God's dwelling place or his sanctuary is shrouded in righteousness because it's all inside is all fine linen. Okay, does that make sense so far? All right, so then over the top of that, you get this layer of goat's hair. Goats were used as sin offerings. Mm -hmm. So on the Day of Atonement, there were two goats. One was slaughtered for the sins of the people. The other was used as a scapegoat. So the high priest, while touching the goat, would confess the sins of the people, and then he would send the goat out of the camp. They were used as sin offerings. Goats are also connected <coughs> with sin in a lot of other ways in Scripture. Rebecca put goat's hair on Jacob's arms to deceive Jacob. It was goat's hair that she used, which is crazy. I can't believe Esau was that hairy. Joseph's <laughs> brothers. <laughs> feel sorry for his wife. Joseph's brothers, <laughs> seriously though, <laughs> they killed a goat to deceive their father into thinking Joseph was dead. So again, you see goats and sin. Then in the New Testament, Jesus likens the wicked unto goats in contrast to his people who are sheep. So again, you see goats being representative of sin. So when we put these two layers together, we get a layer of sin over the top of perfect righteousness. Mmm, we're starting to see something develop here. So we were perfect once. Adam and Eve were perfect. And then what happened? Sin. Sin. A layer of sin over the top of their perfect righteousness. And ironically, most scholars agree that the goat's hair was probably black in color. I don't know. Who knows if it was or not. But I, oh, that's interesting. Stick that tidbit in there. So with that in mind, think about the next layer, which is, depending on your translation, it either says tanned ram skins, which is what the ESV says, or ram skins dyed red. The NIV, the NASB, the King James, and the CSB all say ram skins dyed red. And if in your ESV, you might have a little asterisk at the bottom that says it actually means ram skins dyed red. The color red over the top of black goat's hair of sin. 
Rosie just got it. <laughs> what could that portray, Rosie? Blood. Christ's blood may be over the top of sin. Absolutely. Also, the ram was the head of the flock, just as Christ is the head of the church. So you get these tanned ram skins dyed red over the top, or ram skin, yeah. So now we go to the outer layer, whatever animal it was, and you know that outer layer took a beating. Whether it was sun, whether it was wind, you know, I don't know if they had dust storms, I don't know if they had other storms, but you know that that outer layer took a beating. So even though it didn't look like anything special, it had to have been very strong, just as our Lord in the fullness of God was strong and able to bear our sins and take a beating and act as our protective covering. So now, if we work our way from the outside back in, and this should be on your handout, the layers thus portray Christ, beaten and battered, his blood poured out over the top of sin so that we might forever dwell in and be the righteousness of God. Anybody else think that's so cool? <laughs> I have to save my favorite part for last. Isn't that neat? You just think about every single detail. It's just mind-blowing. You just have to think about it. How do you get this when you study stuff? Like, oh. Lots of reading, lots of studying. So I'm just like, I don't but, get that when I read it. I want to be able to get it. <laughs> well, I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, I can help you. I, I do lots of research, lots of reading. I don't get it just from sitting down and reading Exodus. You know, I have to really dig in and go to the scholars, other people that are way smarter than me, and have them help me put it all together. But. You could do it, Shay. You could do it. <laughs> so if you think then of these last few details, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the linen covering. They were, the linen was held together, even these little details, with clasps of gold, and they were secured with loops of blue. So again, that, that layer of righteousness, <coughs> getting the gold and the blue, and then um, the goat's hair, which you know, was representing sin, was coupled with class of bronze, which would have been judgment, symbolic of judgment. So even those little details, God was so specific on what the class and the loops and like what color and what they were to be made out of. Every little detail so perfectly thought out, just like Faith was saying. So you guys, this, this, is, this is what I, the conclusion that I came to. How often do I consider the Lord unable to handle the details of my life? Way more than I should admit. <laughs> All the time. I think God's not, you know, I know he's got it under control, but I don't act like that. And I think that I'm going to have to explain things to him or I'm going to have to help him figure it out. Look, you just look at the tabernacle and you see all these little details. He doesn't need my help. He has every little thing planned out. He has a plan and a purpose for each part of the tabernacle, just as he has a plan and a purpose for each part of my life. For every little detail, God does all things with purpose and meaning. So sometimes there's things going on in your life and you're thinking, I don't get this. Why am I going through this? 
But we have a God that was so in tune with every detail of the tent of a, you know, that was a tent that was only in existence for 400 years. Of course he is going to be involved 